0: The following is a conversation with Anne Druyan, writer, producer, director, and one of the most important and impactful communicators of science in our time. She co-wrote the 1980 science documentary series, Cosmos, hosted by Carl Sagan, whom she married in 1981, and her love for whom, with the help of NASA, was recorded as brainwaves on a golden record, along with other things our civilization has to offer, and launched into space on the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft that are now, 42 years later, still active, reaching out farther into deep space than any human-made object ever has. This was a profound and beautiful decision Anne made as a creative director of NASA's Voyager Interstellar Message Project. In 2014, she went on to create the second season of Cosmos, called Cosmos, A Spacetime Odyssey, and in 2020, the new third season called Cosmos Possible Worlds, which is being released this upcoming Monday, March 9th. It is hosted, once again, by the fun and the brilliant Neil deGrasse Tyson. Carl Sagan, Annie Druyan, and Cosmos have inspired millions of scientists and curious minds across several generations by revealing the magic, the power, the beauty of science. I am one such curious mind. And if you listen to this podcast, you may know that Elon Musk is as well. He graciously agreed to read Carl Sagan's words about the pale blue dot in my second conversation with him. If you listened, there was an interesting and inspiring twist at the end. This is the Artificial Intelligence Podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube, give it five stars on Apple Podcasts, support it on Patreon, connect with me on twitter at lexfriedman, spelled f-r-i-d-m-a-n as usual i'll do one or two minutes of ads now and never any ads in the middle that can break the flow of the conversation i hope that works for you and doesn't hurt the listening experience this show is presented by cash app the number one finance app in the app store when you get it use code LexPodcast. podcast cash app lets you send money to friends Buy Bitcoin and invest in the stock market with as little as $1. Since Cash App allows you to send and receive money digitally, peer-to-peer, and security in all digital transactions is very important, let me mention the PCI data security standard that Cash App is compliant with. I'm a big fan of standards for safety and security. PCI DSS is a good example of that where a bunch of competitors got together and agreed that there needs to be a global standard around the security of transactions. Now we just need to do the same for autonomous vehicles and artificial intelligence systems in general. So again, if you get Cash App from the App Store, Google Play and use the code Lex, podcast, you get $10 and Cash App will also donate $10 to FIRST, one of my favorite organizations that's helping to advance robotics and STEM education For young people around the world. And now, here's my conversation with Anne Druyan. What is the role of science in our society?
1: Well, I think of what Einstein said when he opened the 1939 New York World's Fair. He said, if science is ever to fulfill its mission the way art has done, it must penetrate, its inner meaning must penetrate the consciousness of everyone. And so for me, especially In a civilization dependent on high technology and science, one that aspires to be democratic, it's critical that the public, as informed decision-makers, understand the values and the methods and the rules of science.
0: So you think about... The what you just mentioned, the values and the methods and the rules and maybe the technology that science produces, but what about sort of the beauty, the mystery of science?
1: Well, you've touched on what I think is, for me, that's how my way into science is that, for me, it's much more spiritually uplifting. The revelations of science, the collective revelations of, you know, really countless generations of searchers. And the little tiny bit we know about reality is the greatest joy for me because I think that it relates to the idea of love. Like what is love that is based on illusion about the other? (laughs) That's not love. Love is seeing unflinching the other and accepting with all your heart. And to me, knowing the universe as it is, or the little bit that we're able to understand at this point, is, a, is the purest kind of love. And therefore, you know, how can our philosophy, our religion, if it's rootless in nature, how can it really be true? I just don't understand. So I think you need science uh, to get a sense of, of the real romance of life and the great experience of being awake in the cosmos.
0: So that the fact that we know so little, the the humbling nature of that. So, and you kind of connect love to that, but isn't it also, isn't it scary? Isn't it, why is it so inspiring? Do you think, why is it so beautiful that we know so little?
1: Well first of all, as Socrates thought, you know, knowing that you know little is knowing, really knowing something, knowing more than others. And it's the huh. it's that voice whispering in our, our heads, you know, you might be wrong, <laughs> which I think is not only it's really healthy because we're so imperfect, we're human, of course, but also, you know, love to me is the feeling that you always want to go deeper, get closer. You can't get enough of it. You can't get close enough, deep enough. So, and that's what science is always saying. Science is never simply content with its understanding of any aspect of nature. It's always saying, it's always finding that even smaller cosmos beneath. So I, uh, I think the two are very much parallel.
0: So you said that love is not an illusion.
1: No, it's not. So well if it is what is love? <laughs> what is love is is knowing for me love is is knowing something deeply and still being completely gratified by it, you know, and wanting to know more. So what is love what is loving someone, a person, yes. let's say, deeply is not idealizing them not putting some kind of subjective projection on them but knowing them as they are and so for me for for me the only aperture to that knowing about nature the universe is science because it has that error correcting mechanism that most of uh, the stuff that we do doesn't have you know you could say the bill of rights is kind of an error correcting mechanism which i it's one of the things i really appreciate about the society in which I live, to the extent that it's upheld, mm-hmm. and we keep faith with it, and the same with science. It's like we will give you the highest rewards we have for proving us wrong about something. <laughs> that's genius. That's that's why. That's why, in only four hundred years since Galileo's first look through a telescope, we could get from this really dim, vague, ap- this vague apprehension of another world to sending our eyes and our senses there, or even to going beyond. So, it is, It is. it delivers the goods like <laughs> nothing else, you know? It really, it, it delivers the goods because it's always, it's always self-aware of its fallibility.
0: So, and, and that Topic, I'd like to ask just your opinion and a feeling I have that I'm not sure what to do with, which is the the skeptical aspect of science. So the modern skeptics community and just in general, certain scientists, many scientists, maybe most scientists that apply the scientific method are kind of rigorous in that application and they, it feels like sometimes miss out some of the ideas outside the reach of, just slightly outside of the reach of science. And they don't dare to sort of dream or think of revolutionary ideas that others will call crazy in this particular moment. So how do you think about the skeptical aspect of science that is really good at sort of keeping us in check, keeping us humble, but, but at the same time, sort of the kind of dreams that you and Carl Sagan have inspired in the world, uh, it kind of shuts it down sometimes a little bit
1: yeah I mean, I think it's up to the individual. But for me, you know, I was so ridiculously fortunate in that i my tutorial in science, because I'm not a scientist and I wasn't trained in science, was twenty years of days and nights with Carl Sagan. And the wonder, I think the reason Carl remains so beloved, well, I think there are many reasons. But at the root of it is the fact that his skepticism was never at the cost of his wonder and his wonder was never at the cost of his skepticism so he couldn't fool himself into believing something he wanted to believe because it made him feel good at the other, but on the other hand he recognized that what science what nature is is really it's good enough you know it's way better <laughs> than our fantasies yeah. and so if you if you are that kind of person who loves happiness loves life and your eyes are wide open and you read everything you can get your hands on and you spend years studying what is known so far about the universe then you have that capacity a really infinite capacity to be Alive, but all, and also at the same time to be very rigorous about what you're willing to believe. For Carl, I don't think he ever felt that his skepticism cost him anything because, again, it comes back to love. He wanted to know what Nietzsche really was like, not to inflict his, you know, preconceived notions on what he wanted it to be. So you can't go wrong because (laughs) it doesn't, you know, I mean, you know i think the pale blue dot is the is is a perfect example of this of his massive achievement is to say okay or the voyager record is another example is here we have this mission our first reconnaissance of the outer solar system well how can we make it a mission in which we absolutely squeeze every drop of consciousness and understanding from it, we don't have to be scientists and then be human beings. I think that's the tragedy of Western civilization: is that it's you know when it's one of its greatest gifts it has been science, and yet at the same time, it believing that we are the children of a disappointed father, a tyrant mm-hmm. who puts us in a maximum security prison and calls it paradise, who looks at us, who watches us every moment and hates us for being our human selves. You know, And then most of all, what is our great sin? It's partaking of the tree of knowledge, which is our greatest gift as humans, this pattern recognition, this ability to to see things and then synthesize them and jump to conclusions about them and test those conclusions. So, I think the reason that in literature, in movies, the scientist is a figure of alienation, a figure, you know, or you see these biopics about scientists, and mm-hmm. yeah, he might have been great, but, you know, he was missing a ship. You know, he was a lousy husband. He lacked, you know, the kind of spiritual understanding that uh, maybe, you know, his wife had. And it's always in the end, and they come around. But to me, that's, that's a false dichotomy, that we are, you know, to the extent that we are aware of our surroundings and understand them, which is what science makes it possible for us to do, we're even more alive.
0: So you you mentioned a million awesome things there. Let's (laughs) even just can you tell me about the Voyager one and two spacecraft and the and the interstellar message project and that whole just fascinating world leading up to one of my favorite
1: subjects. I love talking about (laughs) it. I'll never get over it. Yeah, I'll never be able to really wrap my head around the the reality of it, the truth of it.
0: What is it first of all? What's the Voyager spacecraft?
1: Okay, so Voyager is one and two were our first reconnaissance mission of what was then considered the outer solar system. And it was a gift of gravity, the idea (laughs) that swinging around uh, these worlds gives you a gravitational assist, which ultimately will send you out of the solar system to wander the Milky Way galaxy for one to five billion years. So Voyager gave us our first close-up look of uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, um, Neptune. It discovered new moons. It discovered volcanoes uh, on Io. Its achievements are astonishing. And remember, this is technology from the early to mid-1970s.
0: And it's still active.
1: And it's still active. We talked to Voyager a few days ago. (laughs) We talked to it, in fact, a year ago, I think it was. We needed to slightly change the attitude of the spacecraft. And so we fired up its thrusters for the first time since 1987. Did they work? Instantly. (laughs) It was as if you had left your car in the garage in 1987 (laughs) yeah. <laughs> and you put the key in the ignition because you use keys then in the ignition, yeah. and it turned over the first time you stepped on the gas. Wow. And so that's the genius of the engineering yeah. of Voyager. And Carl was one of the uh, key participants in, in, in imagining what its mission would be because it was a, a gift, actually, of the fact that every 175 years Plus or minus, there is an alignment of the worlds, and so you could t- send two spacecraft to these other worlds and photograph them and use your mass spectrometer and all the other t- uh, devices on Voyager to to really to to explore these worlds.
0: And it's the farthest spacecraft. It's the farthest human creation away from us today. Yes, right? Voyager it's one. Voyager one.
1: These two spacecraft not only gave us our first close-up look at hundreds of moons and planets, these four giant, these planets, but also it told us the shape of the solar system Mm -hmm. as it moves through the galaxy, because there were two of them going in different directions Mm -hmm. and they finally, and they arrived at a place called the heliopause, which is where the wind from the sun, the solar wind dies down and the interstellar medium begins. And both Voyagers were the first spacecraft that we had that could tell us when that happened. So it's a consummate, it, I think it's the greatest scientific achievement of the 20th century.
0: And engineering in some sense. That's engineering,
1: and- I mean really, you know, Voyagers, Voyager is doing this on, less energy than you have in your toaster, something like 11 watts. Yeah. So, okay, but because of this gravitational assist, both Voyagers were destined, as I say, to, they were, just, they were first of all, they were supposed to function for a dozen years. And now it's 42 years since launch and we're still talking to them. So that's amazing. But prior to launch, almost a year, eight, nine months prior to launch. It was decided that since Frank Drake and Carl Sagan and Linda Salzman Sagan had created something called the Pioneer 10 plaque for the Pioneer spacecraft that preceded Voyager, um, which was kind of like a license plate for Mm -hmm. the planet Earth. You know, a man and a woman, hands up, you know, very very basic, um, but very effective. And it captured the imagination of people all over the world. And so NASA turned to Frank and to Carl and said, we'd like you to do a message for Voyager (laughs) because if it's going to be circumnavigating the Milky Way galaxy for one to five billion years, you know, it's like 20 trips around the galaxy. And there's a very small chance that a spacefaring civilization would be able to flag one of them down. And so on board, you see this exquisite golden disk with scientific hieroglyphics explaining our address and various basic scientific uh, concepts that we believe that would be common to any space-faring civilization. And then beneath this exquisite golden disk is... uh, the Voyager record, the golden record. Uh, And it contains something like 118 photographs, images uh, of life on earth, as well as 27 pieces of music from all around the world. Many people describe it as the invention of world music. World music was not a concept that existed before the Voyager record and we were determined to take our music not just from the dominant technical cultures but from all of the rich cultural heritage of the earth and there's a sound essay which is a kind of uh, using using a microphone as a camera to tell the story of the earth beginning with its geological sounds and moving into biology and then into technology. And Lex, I think what you were getting at is that at the end of this sound essay, I had asked Carl if it were, in the making of the record, it was my honor to be the creative director of the project, if it was possible to, if I had meditated for an hour, while I was hooked up, so that you know every single signal that was coming from my brain, my body uh, was recorded, and then converted into uh, into sound for the record. Was it possible that these putative extraterrestrials of the distant future, of perhaps a billion years from now, would be able to reconstitute this message and to understand it? And he just, big smile, you know, and just said, Well, <laughs> hey, a billion years is a long time. A and long he time. Go do it. <laughs> and so uh, I did this. And
0: uh, what were you thinking about in the meditation? Like, what? I mean, it's such an interesting idea of recording as you think about things. What were you thinking about?
1: So I was blindfolded and uh, couldn't hear anything. And I had made an, a, a mental itinerary. Of exactly where I wanted to go. I was truly humbled by the idea that these thoughts could conceivably touch the distant future. Yeah,
0: that's incredible. So
1: it's 1977. There are some 60,000 nuclear weapons on the planet. The Soviet Union and the United States are engaged in a, you know, to the death uh, competition. And so I began by trying to tell the history of the planet in you know to my limited ability, what I understood about the story of the early existence of the of the planet, about the origin of life, about the evolution of life, about our the history of humans, about our current at the time predicament, about the fact that one in five of us was starving uh, or unable to get potable water. And so I, I sort of gave a kind of, uh, you know, as 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 general a picture as I possibly could of our predicament. And uh, I also had, was very newly, within days of... Uh, the moment when Carl and I fell in love with each other. Maybe we fell in love with each other long before because we'd known each other for years. But it was the first time that we had <laughs> expressed our feelings for each other. It
0: Acknowledged was, it, the existence of this Yes, book.
1: because we were both involved with other people and it was a completely outside uh, his morality and mine mm-hmm. to even broach the subject. <laughs> but it was only days after that it happened And for me, it was a eureka moment. It was in the context of finding that piece of Chinese music that was worthy to represent one of the oldest musical traditions on earth when those of us who worked on the Voyager record were completely ignorant about Chinese music. And so that had been a constant uh, challenge for me, talking to professors of Chinese music as no musicologist everywhere and all through the project, desperately trying to find this one piece. Found the piece, lived on the Upper West Side, found the piece, uh, a professor at Columbia University gave it to me. And he's, of all the people I talked to, everyone had said, that's hopeless. You can't do that. that. There can't be one piece of Chinese music. But he was completely... No problem, I've got it. And so uh, he, he told me the story of the piece, which only made it an even greater candidate for the record. Which, and I listened to it called Carl Sagan, who was in Tucson, Arizona, addressing the American Society of Newspaper Editors. And um, and I left him a message, a hotel message center. And he called me back uh, an hour later and I heard this beautiful voice say, I get back <laughs> to my hotel room and I find this message that Annie called. And I asked myself, why didn't you leave me this message 10 years ago?
0: <laughs>
1: my heart was beating out of my chest. I, it was for me a kind of Eureka moment, a a scientific breakthrough. A truth, a great truth had suddenly been revealed. And of course I was awkward and didn't really know what to say and so I blurted something out like, um, oh I've been meaning to talk to you about that, Carl, which wasn't really true. I never would have talked to him about it. We had been alone countless times.
0: We humans are so awkward in these beautiful moments. (laughs) in these amazing (laughs) moments. And I
1: just said uh, for keeps, (laughs) and he thought for a very brief, like a second, and said, you mean get married? And I said, yeah, and he said, yeah. And we put down the phone, and I literally was jumping around my apartment like a lunatic (laughs) because it was so obvious. You know, it was something like, of course. And then the phone rang again. And I thought, damn, no, he's going to say, I don't know what I was saying. <laughs> I am married. I have a kid. I'm not going to do this, you know? But he was like, I just want to make sure that that really happened. And I said, yeah. And he said, it's we're true. getting married. And I said, yeah, we're getting married. Now, this was June 1st, 1977. The records had not been affixed to the spacecraft yet. And there had been a lot of controversy about what we were doing. Um, I should say that there, you know, among the 118 pictures was an image of a man and a woman mm. frontally, mm. completely naked. Naked, and there was, I believe, a congressman on the floor had said wow. NASA to send smut to the stars, you know, oh, and so NASA really they. Got very upset and they said, You can't send a picture. And we had done it so that it was so brilliant. It was like this yeah. lovely couple, completely naked. And then the next image was a kind of overlay schematic mm-hmm. to show the fetus inside this woman that was developing. Mm-hmm. And then that went off into, you know, additional imagery of human reproduction. And it really hit me that how much we hate ourselves, <laughs> that we. Couldn't bear to be seen as we are. So, uh, in some
0: sense, that congressman also represents our society. Yeah, so perhaps his opposition should have been included as well. <laughs> yes, well, that
1: was one of the most uh, vigorous debates during the making of the record with yeah. uh, you know the five six people that we collaborated with. Was do we show? Do we only put our best foot forward, mm-hmm. or do we show? Hiroshima, Auschwitz, um, the Congo—what we have done.
0: What to, do you think represents humanity? If you kind of, if if you think about it, do our darker moments are they essential for humanity? All the wars we've been through, all the tortures and the suffering, and the cruelty—is that essential for happiness, for beauty, for creation, generally well, speaking? Well, it's certainly
1: not essential for happiness or beauty. That's for sure. I mean, it's part of who we are if we're going to be real about it, which is, you know, I I think we tell on ourselves, even if we don't want to be real, we, you know, I think that if you're a spacefaring civilization and you've gotten it together sufficiently, you can move from world to world, then I think they probably took one look at this derelict spacecraft (laughs) and they knew that these were people in their technological adolescence. Yeah. And they were just setting forth, and they must have had these issues but, you know, yeah. because it's, <laughs> and so it really, you know, that's the great thing about lying is that a lie only has a shelf life. It's like, if yeah. like a great like a work of art that's a forgery, people can be fooled immediately. But 10 or 15 years, 20 years later, they start to look at it, and, yeah. you know, they begin to realize the, the lens our lens of our present is coloring everything that we see. So, you know, I think it didn't matter that we didn't show our atrocities.
0: They would fill in the blanks.
1: (laughs) They would fill in the blanks.
0: So let me sort of ask, you've mentioned how unlikely it is that um, you and Carl, that two souls like yours would meet in this vast world. what are your views on how and why incredibly unlikely things like these nevertheless do happen?
1: It's purely to me chance. It's totally random. <laughs> it's a just, I mean, but, and the fact is, is that some people are, and it's happening every day right now. Some people are the random casualties of chance. And that, and I don't just mean the people who are being, you know, Destroyed in childhood in wartime. Uh, I'm also, or the people who starved to death because of famine, but also the people who, um, you know, who who are not living to the fullest. All of these things. I think there's a. My parents met on the subway <laughs> in rush hour, and so I'm only here with you because <laughs> of the most random possible. Situation, and so I've had this a sense of this even before I knew Carl. I always felt this way that I only existed because of the generosity
0: of the rush hour
1: (laughs) of the of of, uh, no of just all of the things, all of the skeins of causality.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because you know the rush hour is a source of stress for a lot of people, but clearly in its moments, it can also be a source of uh, something beautiful. That's right. Of strangers meeting and so right. on. So everything every, everything is uh, has a possibility of doing something That's beautiful. Right. Uh, so l- let me ask sort of a, a quick tangent on the Voyager, so th- this, this beautiful romantic notion that Voyager one is sort of the, our far- farthest human reach into space. If you think of what, um, I don't know if you've seen, but what Elon Musk did with uh, putting the Roadster Uh, letting it fly out into space. There's a sort of humor to it. I think that's also kind of interesting, but uh, maybe you can comment on that. But in general, if now that we are developing, we're venturing out into space again in a more serious way, what kind of stuff that represent since Voyager was launched should we send out as a Mm follow-up? Is there things that you think that's developed in the next in, in the forty years after yeah. that, uh, we should update the the, the spacefaring aliens. That might well, of
1: course, be now we could send the worldwide. We could send everything that's on the worldwide web. We could send. I mean, you know, that was a time when we were talking about photograph records and yeah. transistor radios, and right. you know, so uh, we tried to be uh, to take advantage of the existing technology to the fullest extent. You know, the computer that was hooked up to me from my brainwaves and my heart sounds while I was meditating was, you know, the size of a gigantic room. And I'm sure it, it's not that it didn't have the power of a phone it has the phone has now. So, you know, now we could just, I think we could let it all hang out. We could just <laughs> like send, you know, every, I mean, that's the wonder. Like I would send, you know, Wikipedia or something. And, uh, not be a gatekeeper, but show. But that's interesting because who we are.
0: You were also. It's interesting because one of the problems of the internet of having so much information is it's actually the curation, the human curation, is still the powerful, beautiful thing. Yes. So what you did with the record is actually. Is exactly the right process. It's kind of boiling down a massive amount of possibilities of what you could send into something that represents, you know, the better angels of our nature or represents our humanity. So, if you think about, you know, what would you send from the internet as opposed to sending all of Wikipedia, for example, all of human knowledge, is there something just new that we've developed, you think, or fundamentally? We're still the same kind of uh, human species.
1: I think fundamentally we're the same, but we have a kind of, we, we are, we have advanced uh, to an astonishing degree in our capacity for data retrieval and for transmission. And so, you know, I would send YouTube. I would send, you know, <laughs> really like think of all that, you know, I, I, I still feel so lucky that. There's any great musical artist of the last 100 years who I revere. I can just find them and right. watch them and listen to them. And, you know, that's fantastic. I also love how democratic it is that we each become curators and that we each decide those things. Now, I may mean, not agree with, you know, Those the choices that everyone makes. But of course not, because that's not the point. The point is, is that we are, you know, we have discovered largely through the internet that we are an intercommunicating organism. And that can only be good.
0: So you could also send now Cosmos.
1: Yes, I'd love to. (laughs) I would be proud
0: to. I mean, you've spoken about uh, a very specific voice that Cosmos had in, in um, that it reveals the magical science. I think you said shamanic journey of it and not the details of the latest breakthroughs or so on. It's just revealing the magic. Can you try to describe what this voice of Cosmos is with the with the follow-up and the new Cosmos that you're working on now?
1: Yes, well, the dream of Cosmos is really like Einstein's quote, you know? It's the idea of the awesome power of science to be in absolutely everyone's hands. You know, it belongs to all of us. It's not the preserve of a priesthood. It's just as the community of science is becoming more diverse and being less exclusive than it was guilty of in the not so recent past. The discoveries of science, our understanding of the cosmos that we live in has uh, really grown by leaps and bounds and probably we've learned more in the last hundred years about it uh, you know the 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 tempo of discovery has picked up so rapidly and so the idea of cosmos from the 1970s when Carl and I and Steven Soder another astronomer, first imagined it was that interweaving uh, not only of these scientific concepts and revelations and using, you know, cinematic VFX to take the viewer on this transporting, uplifting journey, but also the stories of the searchers. Mm -hmm. Because the more I have learned about, you know, the process of science through my life with Carl and since, the more I am really uh, persuaded that it's that adherence to the facts uh, and to that adherence to that little approximation, that little bit of reality that we've been able to get our hands around is something that we desperately need. And it doesn't matter if you are a scientist. In fact, the people, it it matters even more if you're not. And since uh, the level of science teaching has been fairly or unfairly maligned. And the idea that once there was such a thing as a television network, which of course has now evolved into many other things, the idea that you could, in the most democratic way, make accessible to absolutely everyone, and most especially people who don't even realize that they have an interest in the subject or who feel so intimidated by the jargon of science and its kind of exclusive history. The idea that we could do this, and you know in season two of Cosmos, The Space-Time Odyssey, We were in 181 countries in the space of two weeks. It was the largest rollout in television history, which is really amazing for a there is no science-based program. By the way,
0: just to clarify, the series was rolled out. So it was shown in in the, that many countries. It, you said we were in uh,
1: Well, our show <laughs> the, the was show. in 180 <laughs> countries.
0: Yeah, the show, which is yes. incredible. I mean, the 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 hundreds of millions, whatever that number is, the people that watched it, it's just it's crazy.
1: It's so crazy that for instance, uh my son had a cerebral hemorrhage a year ago. And the Doctor who saved his life in a very uh, dangerous situation. When he realized that, you know, that Sam and I were who we were, he said, That's why I'm here. You know, he said, Mm -hmm. If you come of age in a poor country like Colombia and Carl Sagan calls you to science when you're a child, then, then. You know, you go to medicine because that's the only avenue open to you. But that's why I'm here. And I have heard that story. And I hear that story, I think, every week.
0: (laughs) How does that make you feel? I mean, the the number of scientists, I mean, a lot of it is quiet, right? But the number of scientists Cosmos has created is just countless. I mean it probably touched a lot, of, I don't know, probably it could be a crazy number of the like 90% of scientists or something have been I would love to
1: do that census because <laughs> I uh, because that's the mo- the greatest gratification because that's the dream of science and that's the whole idea is that if it belongs to all of us and not just a tiny few then we have some chance of determining how it's used. And if it's only in the hands of people whose only only interests are the balance sheet or hegemony over other nations or things like that, then it'll probably end up being a gun aimed at our heads. But if it's distributed in the widest possible Mm -hmm. way, uh, a capability that we now have because of our technology, then the chance is that um that it'll be used with wisdom. That's that's the dream of it. So that's that's why we did the first cosmos. We wanted to take not just, as I say, the scientific information, but also tell the stories of these searchers. Because for us and for me in carrying on this series in the second and third seasons, the the the, the primary interest was that we wouldn't tell a story unless it was kind of a threefer. You know, it was not <laughs> just a way to understand a new sci- a scientific idea, but it was also a way to understand what, if it matters what's true, wh- how the world can change for us and how we can be protected. And if it doesn't matter what's true, then we're in grave danger because we have the capability to not only destroy ourselves and our civilization, but to take so many species with us.
0: And I'd like to talk to you about that particular, the sort of the dangers of, of ourselves in a little bit, but sort of to linger on cosmos, maybe for the first, the 1980 and the 2014 follow-up, What are, what's a, or one of the, or several memorable moments from the creation of uh, either of those seasons?
1: Well, you know, the, the critical thing really was the fact that Seth McFarlane became our champion. Because I had been, uh, with three colleagues, I had been schlepping around from network to network with a treatment for Cosmos, and every network said they wanted to do it. But they wouldn't give me creative control, and they wouldn't give me enough money to make it cinematic and to make it feel like you're really going on an adventure. And so, and I gives- think both
0: of those things. Sorry, to draw both of those things are given what Cosmos represents, the the legacy of it, the legacy of Carl Sagan is essential control, especially in the modern world. I, it's 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 wonderful that you sought control that you did not really. And I'm saying
1: no. And my partners, I'm sure, you know, I know they would look at me like I was nuts, you know, and they probably must have entertained the idea that maybe I didn't really want to do it, you know, because I was afraid (laughs) or something. But I kept saying no, and it wasn't until I met Seth MacFarlane and he took me to Fox. And Peter Rice and said, you know, I'll pay for half the pilot if I have to, you know. And Peter Rice was like, "Put your money away." Yeah. And uh,
0: Seth said that,
1: yeah, yeah. And uh, and 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 in every time since, in the in the ten years since, at every turn when we needed Seth to intervene on our behalf, uh, he stood up and he did it. And so okay. that was like, in a way, that is the, you know, the watershed for me, of the whole, everything that followed since. And then I was so lucky because, I, you know, Steve and I, Steve Soder and I, written the original Cosmos with Carl and, were collab- and collaborated on the treatment for season two. And then Brandon Braga came into our uh, project at the perfect moment and has proven to be the just the... Uh, really, I've been so lucky my whole life. I've collaborated... I've been lucky with the people. My collaborators have been extraordinary. And so that was a critical thing. But also to have, you know, for instance, uh, our astonishing VFX supervisor who comes from the movies, who heads the global association of VFX yeah. people, Jeff Okun. And uh, and then, and, and you know, I could rattle off uh, 10 more <laughs> names. I'd be happy to do that. And it was... That collaboration.
0: So the people were essential to the creation of
1: absolutely. I mean, when it came down, I have to say that when it came down to the vision of what the series would be, that was me sitting in my home, (laughs) looking out the window, and you know, really imagining like what I wanted to do.
0: Can you pause on that for a second? Like, what's the process? Because you know, Cosmos is also it's grounded in science, of course, but it's also incredibly imaginative, and the words used are carefully crafted. Thank you. So what's, if you can talk about the process of that, the big picture imaginative thinking and sort of the rigorous crafting of words that like basically turns into something like poetry.
1: Thank you so much. For me, these are rare occasions for human self-esteem. The scientists that we bring to life in cosmos are people in my view who have everything we need to see us through this current crisis it's their um, very often they come they're poor they're female they're outsiders who are not expected to have gifts that are so prodigious but they persevere and so you have someone like Michael Faraday, who is comes from a family dysfunctional family of like fourteen people. And you know, it never goes to um university never learns the math. but you know, is the you know, there's Einstein years later looking up at the picture of Faraday to inspire him. that so it's, you know, if we had, people with that kind of humility and unselfishness who didn't want to patent everything. Mm. As you know, Michael Faraday created the wealth of the 20th century with his various inventions. And yet he never took out a single patent at a time when people were patenting everything because that was not what he was about. And to me, that's a kind of almost a saintliness Mm. that says that, um, you know, the, here's a man who finds in his life this tremendous gratification from searching. And it's just so impressive to me. And there are so many other people in Cosmos, especially the new season of Cosmos, which is called Possible Worlds.
0: Possible, beautiful
1: title. Possible it. Worlds. Well, I stole it um, <laughs> from uh, an author and a scientist from the 1940s, but it... it for me encapsulates not just you know the exoplanets that we've begun to discover, not just, you know, the the worlds that we might visit, but also the world that this could be, a hopeful vision of the future. You ask me what is common to all three seasons of cosmos or what is that voice? Yeah. It's a voice of hope. It's a voice that says there is a future which we bring to life. And I think fairly dazzling fashion that we can still have, you know. And in sitting down to imagine what this season would be, the new season would be, I'm sitting where I live in Ithaca, beautiful, just a gorgeous <laughs> yeah, place, a trees one. everywhere, yeah. waterfalls. Yeah. I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, you can't, how do you... How do you awaken people? I mean, you can't yell at them and say, we're all going to die. You know, it's not. <laughs> it doesn't help. It doesn't help. But I think if you give them a vision of the future that's not pie in the sky, but something, ways in which science can be redemptive, can actually remediate our future. We have those capabilities right now as well as the capabilities to do things in the cosmos that we could be doing right now but we're not doing them not because we don't know how to how you know with the engineering or the material sciences or the physics we know all we need to know but we're a little bit paralyzed in some sense and you know, we're like, I always think we're like the toddler, you know, <laughs> like we we left our mother's legs, you know, yeah. and scurried out to the moon.
0: Yeah,
1: And we had a moment of, wow, we can do this. And then we realized, and somehow we had a failure of nerve and we went scurrying back to our mother <laughs> and, you know, did things that really weren't going to get us out there, like the space shuttle, things like that, because it was a kind of failure of nerve so cosmos is about overcoming those fears
0: we're now as a civilization ready to be a a teenager venturing out into college we're returning back
1: exactly you're exactly and that and that's one of my theories about our current situation is that This is our adolescence. Adolescence. And I was a total mess as an adolescent. (laughs) I was reckless, irresponsible, totally. I didn't, I was inconsiderate. I, uh, the reality of other people's feelings (sighs) and the future didn't exist for me. So, why should a technologically adolescent civilization be any different? But, um, you know, (laughs) the, The vast majority of people I know made it through that period and went on to be more wise. And that's what my hope is for our civilization.
0: On a sort of uh, darker and more difficult subject in terms of, uh, so you just talked about the cosmos being an inspiration for science and for us growing out of our messy adolescence but nevertheless there is threats in this world so do you worry about existential threats like uh, you mentioned nuclear weapons do you worry about nuclear war yes and if you could also maybe comment i don't know how much you've thought about it but uh uh, well, there's folks like Elon Musk who are worried about the existential threats of artificial intelligence, sort of our robotic computer creations sort mm. of um,
1: yeah.
0: resulting in us humans losing control. So can you speak to the things that worry you in terms of existential concerns? Yeah.
1: Oh, All of the above. <laughs> You'd have to be silly, you know, like not to think and not to look at, for instance, our uh, rapidly burgeoning. Capability in artificial intelligence, not and to see how sick uh, so much of the planet is, not to be concerned. And sick
0: isn't evil, potentially.
1: Well, how how much cruelty and brutality right. is you know, happening at this very moment? And uh, I would put climate change higher up on that list because I believe that there are unforeseen. Discoveries uh, that we are making right now. For instance, all that methane that's coming out of the ocean floor that was sequestered because of the permafrost, which is now melting. Uh, You know, I think there are other effects besides our greed and short term thinking, uh, you know, that we are triggering now with all the greenhouse gases we're putting into the atmosphere. And that worries me day and night. I think about it every single, every moment, really, because I really think we that's how we have to be. We have to begin to really focus on how grave the challenge is to our civilization and uh, to the other species that are it's a mass. This is a mass extinction event that we're living through, and we're seeing it. Uh, we're seeing news of it every day.
0: So, what do you think about another touchy subject? But what do, what do you think about the politicization of science on topics like global warming, embryonic stem cell research, and other topics like it? What's your sense? Why?
1: What do you mean by the politicization of global warming?
0: Meaning that if you say. I think what you just said, which is uh, global warming is a serious concern, it's human caused and right. maybe some detrimental effects. Currently, there's a large percent of the population of the United States that would, as opposed to listening to that statement, would immediately think, oh, that's just a, a liberal talking point. That's what I mean I, by political I think politics. that's
1: not so true anymore. I don't think our problem is, a population that's skeptical about uh, climate change, because I think that the extreme weather fire events that we are experiencing with such frequency is really gotten to people. I think there uh, I think that there are people in leadership positions right. who choose to ignore it and to pretend it's not there, but ultimately, I think they will be rejected. I, the question is, will it be fast enough? Uh, but, you know, this, I don't, I think actually that most people have really finally taken the reality of global climate change to heart. And they look at their children and grandchildren and they don't feel good <laughs> because they come from a world which was, in many ways, in terms of climate, fairly familiar and benign, and they know that we're headed in another direction. And it's not just that, it's what we do to the oceans, the rivers, the air, you know? I mean, you ask me like, what is what is the message of cosmos? Right. <laughs> it's, it's, that, it's that we have to think in longer terms. You know, I think of the Soviet Union and the United States in the Cold War, And they're ready to kill each other over these two different views of the distribution of resources. But neither of them has a form of human social organization that thinks in terms of 100 years, let alone 1,000 years, which are the timescales that science speaks in. And that's part of the problem, is that we have to get a grip on reality and where we're headed. And it's, I, I, I'm not fatalistic at all, uh, but I do feel like, it, you know, and in setting out to to do this series each season, we were talking about climate change in the original Cosmos in episode Sorry. four yeah. and warning about inadvertent climate modification in 1980. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, Carl did his, PhD thesis on the greenhouse effect on Venus and he was painfully cognizant of what a runaway greenhouse effect would do to our planet. And not only that, but the climatic history of the planet, which we go into in great detail in the series. So yeah, I mean, how are we going to get a grip on this if not through some kind of understanding of science? Um, Can I just say one more thing about science? is that its powers of prophecy are astonishing. You launch a spacecraft in 1977, and you know where each and every planet in the solar system is going to be in every moon. And you rendezvous with that flawlessly, and you exceed the design specifications of the greatest dreams of the engineers, and then you go on to explore the Milky Way galaxy and you do it I mean you know the climate scientists, some of the people that we whose stories we tell in cosmos they their predictions were and they were working with very early computer modeling capabilities. They have proven to be so robust nuclear winter all of these things this is a prophetic power and yet how crazy that you know it's like it's like the romans with their lead cooking pots and their lead pipes or the aztecs ripping out their own people's hearts this is us we know better and yet we are acting as if it's business as usual
0: yeah the the beautiful complexity of human nature so speaking of which, let me ask <laughs> uh, a tough question, I guess, because uh, there's so many possible answers, but what aspect of life here on earth do you find most fascinating from the origin of life, the evolutionary process itself, the origin of the human mind, so intelligence, the well, some of the technological developments going on now or us venturing out into space or space exploration, what just inspires you?
1: Oh, they all inspire me. Oh, yeah. Every That's... one of those inspire me. But I have to say that to me, at the origin, of, as I've gotten older, to me, the origin of life has become less interesting. Interesting, wow. Because I feel well, not because it's more. I think I understand. I have a better grasp of how it might have happened.
0: Do you think it was a huge leap? So among- I think
1: it was a. We are a byproduct. Of <laughs> geophysics, and I think it's not. I, 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 I my suspicion, of course, which is you know, take it with a grain of salt, yes. but my suspicion is that it happens more often and mm. more places than we like to think. Because you know, after all, the history of our thinking about ourselves has been a constant series of demotions in which we've had to <laughs> right. realize, you know, no. So to me, that's- we're not
0: at the center of the and solar the origin
1: system. of consciousness is to me also not so amazing, if mm-hmm. you think of it as you know going back to these one-celled organisms of a billion years ago, who you know had had to know well if I go higher up. I'll get too much sun, and if I go lower down, I'll be protected from, you know, UV rays, things like that. They had to know that, or you I eat, me I don't. I mean, even that, I can see. If you know that, then knowing what we know now, it's just it's not so hard to fathom. It seems like, you know, there's I've never believed there was a duality between our minds and our bodies. And uh, I think that it, even
0: consciousness, all those, all those, all those interesting things seem to
1: me, except one of the of things bio,
0: uh, <clears throat> of uh, geophysics. <laughs> I love yeah, all
1: of oh, chemical chemistry, yes, geochemistry, geophysics, absolutely. Beautiful. Of um, <laughs> you know, it makes perfect sense to me, and it doesn't make it any less wondrous. Yeah. It it doesn't rob it at all of the wonder of it, and so yeah, I think that's amazing. I think, you know, we tell the story of someone you have never heard of, I guarantee, and I think you're very knowledgeable on the subject, who was more responsible for our ability to venture out to other worlds than anyone else, and who was completely forgotten. And so those are the kinds of stories I like best for Cosmos. Can you
0: tell me who? <laughs> no, I'm going to
1: make you watch this series. I'm going to make you All right. buy my book.
0: Beautiful. And
1: uh, <laughs> you know, but they, they, I'm just saying, like this person would be forgotten. Yes. But no. you know, I you just the the way that we do Cosmos is that like I ask a question to myself. I really want to get to the bottom to the answer and keep going deeper, deeper until we find what the story is. A story that I know because I'm not a scientist, if it moves me, if it if it moves me, then I want to tell it, and other people will be moved.
0: Do you ponder mortality, yes. human mortality, and maybe even your own mortality?
1: Oh, all the time. I just turned 70, so yeah, I think about it a lot. I I mean, it's, you know, how can you not think about it? But- um,
0: What do you make of this short life of ours? I, I mean, uh, let me ask a sort of another way. uh, You've lost Carl, and speaking of mortality, if you could be, if you could choose immortality, you know, it's possible that science allows us to live much, much longer. Is that something you would choose for yourself, for Carl, for you Well, for Carl, definitely.
1: I would've, you you know, in in a nanosecond, I would take that deal. But not for me. I mean, if Carl were alive, yes, I would want to live forever because <laughs> I know it would be fun. But uh, no. Would it want...
0: be fun forever? I That's don't know. The I don't know. It's just that the... the
1: universe is so full of so many wonderful things yes. to discover that it feels like it would be fun. <laughs> but no, I don't want to live forever. I, I have had a magical life. I just, my, you know, my craziest dreams have come true. And I feel, you know, I forgive me, but this crazy uh, quirk of fate that put my most joyful, deepest feelings, feelings that decades later, 42 years later, I know how real, how true those feelings were. Everything that happened after that was an affirmation of how true those feelings were. And so I don't feel that way. I feel like I have gotten so much more than my share. Um, not just my extraordinary life with Carl, my family, my parents, my children, my friends, the places that I've been able to explore the the. the the books I've read, the music I've heard. So uh, I feel like, you know, if it'd be much better if instead of working on the immortality of the lucky few of the most privileged people in the society, I would really like to see a concerted effort for us to get us our act together. You know, that to me is topic A, more pressing, uh, you know, this possible world. That <laughs> is the challenge, and we're at a kind of a moment where if we can, we can make that choice. So immortality doesn't really interest me. <laughs> I, I really, yeah. I love nature, and I have to say that I, I, because I'm a product of nature, I recognize that it's, it's great gifts and it's great cruelty.
0: Well. I don't think there's a better way to end it, Annie. Thank you so much for talking It was an honor. Oh, it's wonderful. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I
1: really enjoyed it. I thought your <laughs> questions were great.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Andrew Ian, and thank you to our presenting sponsor, Cash App. Download it, use code LEXPODCAST, you'll get $10, and $10 will go to FIRST, an organization that inspires and educates young minds to become science and technology innovators of tomorrow. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe on YouTube, give it five stars on Apple Podcast, support on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. And now, let me leave you with some words of wisdom from Carl Sagan. What an astonishing thing a book is. It's a flat object made from a tree with flexible parts on which are imprinted lots of funny dark squiggles. But one glance at it, and you're inside the mind of another person maybe somebody dead for thousands of years. Across the millennia, an author is speaking clearly and silently inside your head, directly to you. Writing is perhaps the greatest of human inventions, binding together people who never knew each other, citizens of distant epochs. Books break the shackles of time. A book is proof that humans are capable of working magic.